Well, good morning, church. Good to see you all here this morning. We're going to study God's word together. So if you would get your Bible open to the book of John. John chapter 19 is where we're going to be. And while you're turning there, let me just say a word of welcome to our guests who are with us this morning. It's a joy to have you here. I hope you come away edified, encouraged, and built up as we look together at God's word and worship him by seeing him shining out from the pages of scripture. So this month we're focused on Advent, so we're looking in particular as a church at the the four really biggest turning points in human history, the most significant events in the history of the world. So incarnation and then the atonement, so Jesus' cross, and then the resurrection and then the last turning point in redemptive history, which is the, the new creation. So we're looking at each of those one at a time as we move through this month. And these are events that aren't just described in scripture, but they are unpacked in terms of their meaning. So they're, they're events that have meaning, and the meaning of these events is driven by a divine purpose. It unfolds a divine intention, a divine plan, and that's what we're looking at all month long. We're considering how these events, these crucial turning points in world history, relate to our lives, the significance they have for our lives. And the way that we're doing that is by asking four questions. We looked at the first question last week was, can God be trusted? And we looked at how the arrival of Jesus is the fulfillment of ancient prophecy. God can be trusted. His word is true. He's faithful to his promises. And the question we're asking this week is, can my past be erased? Can my past be erased? Again, if you weren't here last week, we're looking at very brief passages so that I would commend to you um, to take the opportunity to memorize these brief passages, basically one verse each week, and we'll unpack that verse. So our verse this week is John 19, verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Then, bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Preaching professor uh, Brian Chappell warns about the problem of preaching sermons that aren't distinctly Christian. He calls them the deadly bees, where you look at a passage and you say, see, here's Daniel, be like Daniel. Here's David, be like David, right? And the main point of the sermon basically is do better. Do better or be better. Well, Christianity is so much more than that, right? And Christianity, if, if we lean into that and we hear that message over and over, Christianity becomes more about the need to do better than about the glory of it is done. More about what you and I are doing than about what Jesus Christ has fully done in his living and dying and rising. So the center changes, right? Jesus becomes peripheral and you and I sit right in the middle, right? Well, over time, what happens is Advent becomes a lot less about the objective work of God in Christ saving the world from sin which is the good news that we've celebrated, the church has celebrated for 2,000 years, and it becomes less about the objective story of the cross and the resurrection, and more about this kind of sentimental, subjective story of God's, you know, vaguely good intentions for the world, right? And unspecified deities, unspecified good intentions 
for the world. Right? A century ago, this, this sort of vague notion of Advent was summarized this way by H. Richard Niebuhr. He said, here's the message of the culture. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Advent, friends, is not syrupy. It is not sentimental. It is an intervention. It is God breaking into world history. It focuses on the objective work of Jesus Christ who entered human history because we had a massive threat upon us. And the threat was the judgment of a holy God toward sinners. And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Advent reminds us of the connection between the birth of Jesus and the death of Jesus, that the one who was born in a lowly manger was born to die. Jesus would clarify that on multiple occasions. The Son of Man did not come into the world to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. They said, call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. John the Baptist sees Jesus coming down to the River Jordan and says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was born to die. He wasn't caught on the horns of a tragedy. He wasn't caught on the wheel of a revolution and then he's pinned to that wheel and he was marred by it. No, he came purposefully to die. The good news that Advent announces, friends, is because of the work of Jesus Christ, shame can be lifted, our sins can be forgiven, and our past can be erased. That's the good news, and we're gonna live in it for a little while by looking at this event of the cross of Jesus Christ. This morning we remember Christ crucified, and we're gonna see it under three unfolding headings. Number one, a dark day, a dark day. So you try to enter the scene of John chapter 19, the broader context, back in verse 16, if you look down in verse 16, you can see the crucifixion is now underway. And then verse 17, look at it, carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what is called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. You might wonder where the word Calvary comes from. Well, Calvary is the Latin word for skull, Calvaria is the Latin word for skull. So Golgotha is the place of the skull and Calvaria or Calvary is the Latin word that gives us our English word Calvary. So, so this is the place, this is the setting, right? It is not a tidy scene, John 19, it is not a serene setting, it is a bloody scene, it is noisy, it is gruesome, it is violent, it is R-rated. One artist said, that if the true rendering of the cross of Christ were depicted by modern art, no one would buy it. It was an absolutely gruesome event. Just take it in, the sound assaults the ears. So boots and nails and jeers and an auction is underway and the cries of a mother. There's just chaos all around the sounds. If you just take in John 19 and listen, to the soundtrack, the, the Romans are auctioning off the last remaining clothes that Jesus was permitted to wear. 
He didn't have a modesty cloth as art often represents. That's, that's the modesty and reverence of the artist. That was not the policy of Rome. Rome had no interest in saving you that last little bit of shame. He hung naked. Matter of fact, one of the earliest writings in church history, Bishop Melito of Sardis, and he said, the reason that the lights of heaven turned away and the day was darkened is because the Son of God hung naked on the cross and was not permitted a garment to hide him from view. The sign above Jesus' head, as the auction is going on, there's a sign above Jesus' head that says, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, and you can just imagine the sport that these Roman soldiers were making of this. Here we go, the bidding begins for the outer garments of the King of the Jews, going once, going twice, and you can hear laughter and jeering and sneering and remarks and body shaming and blasphemy and insults hurled at Jesus Christ and the presence of his mother wouldn't have made them relent at all, even though she's there. Scornful remarks, nothing was off limits. Not just the sounds, but take in the sights. The scene is offensive to the eyes. Gore, violence, and nakedness. Again, for the past three hours, by this point, for the past three hours, this strange darkness, a kind of celestial event, takes place where at midday, it's dark. This entire area is covered with darkness, this strange dark, no doubt provoking confusion and speculation and fear among the people talking about what's going on, this, this almost apocalyptic feeling event, right? Well, we know as Christians, if we've read the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, we know what was happening in that darkness surrounding the hill called Calvary. We know if we've read scripture that in that darkness, Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree. We know in the darkness he was wounded for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. We know in the darkness the Lord was laying on him the iniquity of us all. That's, it wasn't just dark. Things were happening in the darkness, redemptive things. Penalties were being paid. Debts were being paid. A ransom was being paid. Jesus uttered seven sayings from the cross. He addresses the Father first and last. Father, saying number one, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. In the last word, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So there's, there's God at both ends and there's God right in the middle, statement number four. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's utterly taken up with and fixated on the Father even while he's hanging on the cross. When you harmonize what all the gospels say, because no particular gospel says all seven statements, we need all the gospels in order to put that together, but when you harmonize what the gospels say and you put together that chronology and you line up the sayings, it goes like this. Father, forgive them, statement number one. Statement number two, this day, he says to the thief on the cross, you will be with me in paradise. Statement number three, he looks at his mother and says, woman, behold your son. And he looks at John and he says, behold your mother. Statement number four, 
my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Statement number five, I'm thirsty. Statement number six, it is finished. And statement number seven, into your hands, I commit my spirit. When you line those up and you look at the chronology of how it played out, you notice something interesting happens right before I'm thirsty. And it's in our text in verse 28. Something changes in verse 28 and Jesus is conscious of a change. After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. Now, just back up for a second, because in John's gospel, this knowing, when Jesus is associated with this knowing sense, it's always tied to his purpose. It's always tied to the mission, his awareness of his mission, his awareness of where he is and the unfolding task that the Father has assigned to him. So we're moving from a dark day to point number two, a sense of mission. So how do we see this in John's gospel? A quick sampling. For example, in John chapter 13, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it to you. Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew, same word, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. So there's this knowing sense that's attached to Jesus' task assigned by the Father. And then in John 18, Judas, it comes to arrest Jesus, and John 18, 4 says this, then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him. So there's always this conscious sense of where he is in reference to his hour, where he is in reference to finishing his task. And then here in John 19, verse 28, after this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished. Something has changed. Jesus' last statement, if you put it together with Mark's gospel and Matthew's gospel, his last statement was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And here in verse 28, he knows it's done. It's finished. The work that I came to do is finished. You know, sometimes when you, uh, when you watch cartoons, right, you might see two people locked in battle. And it's, it's good versus evil. And evil person or the opponent uh, makes some move and you don't judge it to be all that significant of a move, but sometimes then the camera will zoom in on the face of the protagonist, the face of the hero, and it might zoom in particularly on the mouth and you'll see this slight smile on the mouth of the hero. And you know, I didn't see anything, but apparently something changed. Apparently, the outcome is about to change significantly, right? Well, in verse 28, Jesus knows that everything has been accomplished, right? All that remains, therefore, is to announce it. And he's gonna announce it in our verse, in verse 30, but first he's gonna need a sip of something. Because as the psalmist would say in Psalm 69, his tongue clings to the roof of his mouth. He's dehydrated Jesus asked for the drink, not mainly as a relief from his suffering. He asks for the drink in saying, number five, I'm thirsty, so that he can shout, saying, number six. And I think that's why John connects them, if you look down in verse 30. When, so he said, I'm thirsty. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. 
Jesus' final word is a triumphant shout. It is finished. It's just one word in the original Greek language. He just shouted one word, tetelestai, and it means it is finished. Here's why I love that we have more than just one gospel, because you can look and and see how the gospel writers complement one another and fill in parts that the other one doesn't highlight. Matthew and Mark zoom in on this particular moment and they tell us that after drinking the sour wine, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. But Matthew and Mark don't tell us what the loud voice cried. And there we have John who was standing right there in verse 26, you see John standing right there and now here John supplies the content of the loud cry Matthew and Mark told us about and he says, I was there. Guess what he said? Tetelestai, he shouted this word, it is finished. It's the only cry from the cross that is not addressed to someone. It's not a prayer. It is not a plea, it is not a word of lamentation, it is not an invitation into heaven, it is a cry of triumph, it is an announcement, it is a report on the status of the mission and the status of the mission is it is finished, it is accomplished. It means to bring to an end. It's a typical word that's used by craftsmen in the first century who spoke this language. They would typically use that word to tell us die. They would speak that when a project was complete. Matter of fact, one New Testament scholar named Murray Harris, he said perhaps Jesus had said this before when finishing a table or finishing a chair. And he stood back from the work that he had completed as a craftsman and said, to tell us die. Was he not looking forward to this great ultimate it is finished, this ultimate accomplishment. Makes you wonder, right? That, that, so that's the verb, it is finished, but it's in the perfect tense. So we don't have something exactly like this in English. The perfect tense indicates something that has happened in the past that has ongoing relevance and results in the present and into the future, right? So to render this fully into English, Jesus said something like this, it was finished and it stands completed. Or, it is finished and always will be finished. It's done, don't check back in. It will be done forever because of what happened here. A new state of of events has obtained. We have entered into a new era because of this tetelestai. So, so what does it mean though? What was finished? You ask that question, right? Is Jesus saying, um, this ordeal is finished? I'm finished, is he saying? It's over, it's finally over. It's been a hard six hours and finally it's finished. Finally, it's over. Well, there again, to grasp what it means, we we need to notice that throughout 
John's gospel, Jesus is fixated on his mission and on his task, particularly on what the Father gave him to do. So John chapter four, Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. John chapter five, whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. John chapter six, I have come from heaven to do the will of him who sent me. John chapter eight, I always do what pleases the Father. John chapter 14, I do as the Father commanded. And here, with with three sayings left to speak before his death, Jesus becomes conscious in verse 28 that everything that he came to do is done. The redemptive work is done. The thing that the Father gave to me, the assignment is complete. And so here on the cross, Jesus, as the divine craftsman, looks at his redemptive work and says, Tetelestai, it stands completed. It is done. The great prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, asked the question this way, what it was it that was finished? (laughs) I will not attempt to expound it, though he will momentarily if you keep reading. I will not attempt to expound it. It is the biggest it that ever was. (laughs) Turn it over and you will see that it will grow and grow and grow till it fills the whole earth. It is finished. It has cosmic, not merely personal, cosmic ramifications. It is finished throughout his life. Jesus has this laser focus on his task, right? So you follow through his life and you see he finishes the task. How does the task begin? Well, he enters into history. He takes on the form of a servant. He becomes a servant. He He leaves the glories of heaven. He leaves the worship and exaltation of the angels. He becomes a servant. He takes on our humanity, right? He, he becomes vulnerable. He's a, he is a, he is a child in the manger. He is, he is dependent on his mother for nourishment. He is sleeping in a feeding box for animals that's been repurposed as, as a cradle. This is our savior, right? He becomes a servant. He's hunted by Herod. You keep tracking the story. He has a contract on his head as an infant. That's why his family has to flee in exile to Egypt, they're chased into Egypt. They don't go there on vacation. And then finally when they come back from that, when it's safe and they're told that they can come back, they settle on the wrong side of the tracks, they settle in Galilee, in Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It would be said about Jesus' hometown where he was raised. And then in his life, as you follow him in the pages of the gospels and in his ministry, he's fixated on the task given by the Father. You see it in the obedience he renders. Observing every law to fulfill all righteousness, avoiding every sin, all of it motivated by his love for the Father, all empowered by his dependence on God, fully relying on God. He's fixated on the task even when he's continually tempted and tried. Don't just mean the wilderness, mean the whole of his his life. 
He's ministering and he's teaching and he's doing everything against the wind with the wind in his face, hounded by hells of enemies. Right? They're throwing everything that they can at him. He's awake all hours of the night. He's skipping meals. He's serving people. He's got no place to lay his head at night. He is exhausted. He is tired. He is weary, but never flagging. He comes, as we saw last week, and he demonstrates the power of the kingdom of God. He's rolling back the effects of the fall that have ravaged creation and mankind. All along, again, we saw this last week, he's serving notice on the powers and the prince of darkness that your reign is coming to an end. He's opposed and betrayed by his friends. Not only was he assaulted by, by Satan and attacked by Satan and tempted in that way, he, the, the spiritual enemy that had been whispering in his ears and sometimes the spiritual enemy borrowed the voices of his own brothers, of his own friends, of his own disciples. So he predicts his own death in the presence of his disciples and Peter says, no, that's not what I had in mind for you. There's another way. You don't have to die And Jesus shouts at him. No wonder he shouted at him, right? Jesus shouts, get behind me, Satan, right? Because that whisper in his ears that you don't have to go through suffering to get to glory, you can seize the power now, that's been whispering in his ear all his life and now Peter's gonna join the chorus? Get behind me. He's been hearing that constantly, right? So he's all along, he's fixated on the task. He's fixated on the, the mission, the assignment that God has given to him. And then he receives the sentence of a criminal that leads us to where we are here in John's gospel. He's arrested and beaten and stripped and pinned to a cross and mocked relentlessly. But, but don't, don't miss it. The heaviest burden that Jesus experienced on the cross was not that it's hard to breathe, not the nails. It wasn't the prospect of the nails that he was concerned about when he was weeping in the Garden of Gethsemane just hours before. It was the prospect of the silence of God. Because we know from ancient prophecy as well as from apostolic witness in the New Testament that the torrents of divine justice were unleashed against our substitute. Friend, in John 19, as we look at the place of the skull and we see Jesus hanging between heaven and earth, God is on location. God is there, but not as comforter. God is there, but he is not there as Abba to pour out his favor and delight and his favorable presence on his son, God comes to Golgotha in the robes of a judge. The mystery of all mysteries. The Godhead remaining in perfect unity and yet with the full agreement of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the incarnate Son becomes the object of the wrath of God. And hour by hour, the unrelenting wrath of a holy God slams into the cross of Jesus Christ and he's absorbing, he's he's inhaling hell. Church, behold the gospel. The justice of a holy God against our sin was spent on another who stood 
in our place. I'll say that again. The justice of a holy God against our sin was spent on another who stood in our place. Why did he do all of that? All so he could shout, accomplished, completed, tetelestai, finished. It's the greatest word ever heard in the history of the world, tetelestai. Six hours, Jesus, as one writer said, one of my favorite quotes about the atonement, Jesus drained the cup of God's wrath bone dry, leaving not a drop for us to drink. He turns it over in verse 30, and there's nothing left. That's why Romans 8 says, there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Your cup is empty because he drained it in your place as your substitute. A dark day, a sense of mission, and an open heaven. Friend, remember this truth as we celebrate Advent. Christian faith does not center on what we do, but on what Christ has done. Don't displace the sinner. Don't put yourself in the sinner. He belongs in the sinner. The cross belongs in the sinner. The empty tomb belongs in the center, right? I'll, I'll never forget being in a room. It was, it was 1999. I remember because that's the year that the conference happened. And I was at this conference. I walked into this room. And there in that room, I heard about 1,000 people sing a song I'd never heard before. I'd just recently fallen in love with hymns. And I was walking through my hymnal and just reading one hymn a day. And I hadn't come to this particular hymn, and it was a hymn called Hallelujah, What a Savior. And I heard these thousand people sing, Man of Sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And I just read those words through tears. I didn't know the melody yet, and I'm just reading these words on the screen. And then another verse, Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he, full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a savior. And just when I thought the song could rise no higher, you come to the next verse. Lifted up was he to die, it is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high, hallelujah. What a savior. The church has been singing in one way or another, hallelujah, what a savior, at the foot of the cross for 2,000 years. And as I read those words and heard those 1,000 people sing it into my ears, you know what happened? The weight of do better was eclipsed by the glory of it is done. Friend, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, God proclaims over you, <laughs> it's finished. There's nothing for you to do to satisfy a holy God. There's nothing you can add to his accomplishment. There's nothing that could compel God to love you more, that could compel him to attend more to you, to be more forgiving toward you. It's finished. You don't contribute to something that's complete. <laughs> 
Because it's finished, heaven stands open. This is why I love the fact that we mix Advent with global offering so that we can announce to the world, heaven is open. It is finished. Nothing left to contribute. Here's his name, Jesus. He saves. He died. He rose. You can have life in him. Repent and believe, and it's yours. I love how Charles Spurgeon preaches on this. He says, his disciples thought that the cross would be a degradation. Christ looked through the outward invisible. The cross, said he, the scaffold of my doom may seem to be cursed with shame and the world shall stand round and hiss at the crucified. My name be forever dishonored as one who died upon the tree and scoffers may forever throw this in the teeth of my friends that I died with criminals. But I look not at the cross as you do. I look upon the cross as the gate of triumph, as the portal of victory. Oh, shall I tell you what I shall behold upon the cross? Just when my eye is swimming with the last tear and my heart is palpitating with its last pang, just when my body is rent with its last thrill of anguish, then mine eye shall see the head of the dragon broken. It shall see hell's towers dismantled and its castle fallen. Mine eyes shall see my seed eternally saved. I shall behold the ransom coming from their prison houses. In the last moment of my doom, when my mouth is just preparing for its last cry of it is finished, I shall behold the year of my redeemed come. I shall shout my triumph in the delivery of all my beloved. Yes, and I shall see then the world, mine own earth conquered and all usurpers dethroned. Advent is not a syrupy, sentimental holiday that tells us God is okay if you're okay. Advent is an intervention. Advent is a word of God. It's a word of rescue to a fallen world. Advent is God saying, you're dying, but I'm sending you the remedy. You're sinful, but I'm sending you a savior. You deserve judgment, but the son will bear it in your place if you will have him by faith. For all who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, Advent is music in our ears. Why? Because Advent says the shame can be lifted, the guilt can be removed, the sins forgiven, and your past can be erased. Praise God. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Look, maybe the Lord is prompted. This, this is just the straight up center of the gospel. Maybe the Lord has opened your eyes to hear the story in a new way and he's drawing you to come and find life in Jesus Christ. If that's you, would you pray with me? All of us, let's pray. But I hope you will pray with me something like these words I'm gonna say. Make them your own. God, what a gospel. What good news. God, I'm ready for a new start. God, I've been going the wrong way and I'm ready to turn around. I'm ready to repent. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for a savior. Thank you for his cross. Help me to trust him today. 
and with my whole life from this moment on to follow him as savior, king, treasure, and Lord. Be the master, take the keys, lead me on. God, please, with this step of faith, would you surround me with people who can help me grow as a follower of Jesus? I am yours. And now, Lord, we ask as your people that you would settle this wonderful gospel deep in our bones and it would remove the weight of do better and eclipse it with the glory of it is done. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.